Thanks, Chris, for that introduction. So my name is Stephen Mullen, and I work as a consultant in the Paediatric Emergency Department in Belfast. And this presentation will cover some of the fundamental principles of drowning in children and young people. It includes epidemiology, pathophysiology, and our approach to initial resuscitation and how this may change if the patient is hypothermic. Um, we will also look at some of the recent updated recommendations from the Research Council, which has filtered into our advanced life support algorithms. And for this case, we'll start off with a pre-alert, which in our hospital comes in the form of a very loud red phone. So the case that we have is a two-year-old male who's found in water with no obvious injuries, but is in confirmed cardiac arrest with active advanced life support pre-hospitally. And he will arrive in your department in 10 minutes. And these 10 minutes are key to how you set up your team, discuss what potentially you're going to do and what you may not do in this resuscitation. And when we think of drowning, the first question that comes into my mind is whether I need a medical or trauma team, as I will need probably a reasonable number of people in order to resuscitate this patient to the best of my department's ability. I need to specifically prepare my resuscitation room to receive a drowning patient, thinking of temperature and the number of people I'm going to need in order to continue to do CPR. One of the key pieces of additional information I need is, is this patient hypothermic or not? This will change how I actively resuscitate this patient with deviation from the traditional APLS cardiac arrest algorithm. Time is incredibly important in these cases. And if I can get a little bit of information about whether this case was witnessed or unwitnessed, when they were last seen alive and how long it took them before CPR was started, I can think in my head about what is the potential outcome for this patient. In certain cases we must think, is it appropriate to continue CPR when they arrive in the emergency department? And there's often this strange position we're in when we think of hypothermic cardiac arrest as requiring prolonged resuscitation. But in some cases, the outcome is always going to be poor. And we should consider prepping the team to say when the patient arrives, we may do X, Y, and Z, or we may stop immediately. And it's important that this is discussed in those 10 minutes that you have, so you've got this shared mental model for how you're going to resuscitate this patient. Now, epidemiology and pathophysiology can be onerous topics, and I know all of you want to get stuck in to thinking about how you're actually going to resuscitate them, but we must know about what is happening in the UK and Ireland so that we can prepare for what may arrive in our emergency department. And that's where epidemiology is key. And pathophysiology is really important to understand the mechanisms of drowning, what the patients will go through before they arrive, and what stage we might see them when they arrive in our ED. In the UK, approximately 400 people die each year as a result of drowning. And an additional 200 take their lives in open or inland water. So overall, this is a relatively infrequent event in the UK, but one that we should be expected to see and manage well. If we look at the global data, 
the World Health Organization estimates about a quarter of a million people die each year due to drowning. I mean, much acknowledge that this is an underestimate of the true prevalence. If we look at it from another way, it's responsible for 7% of all injury-related deaths. So it certainly is a global problem. If we look at some of the UK paediatric and young person caseload, one of the best databases we've access to is TARN. And in their publication over a two-year period, they recorded 46 cases with severe injury or an injury severity score over 15. Again, this underrepresents the problem as they exclude all cases that died at scene. And there's also reasonably robust inclusion criteria, which means some cases wouldn't have fulfilled their requirements. And there are differences depending on the age of the patient with those who are young, being very little difference in terms of gender and supervision playing a huge role. And in their older population, it's much more young males who are affected. And we look at some of the themes surrounding it. Alcohol has a huge role to play in deaths in kind of young adults or adolescents and in the adult population. Supervision is a huge issue and we've all been involved in those cases where we've had a young child who's been left unsupervised in a bath or close to a pond with either serious injuries or fatality. And unsurprisingly, epilepsy has a huge role. And it's up to us on discharging patients with first presentation of epilepsy in order to make sure that these children and young people are educated, educated around the dangers of epilepsy in water, particularly around bathing and swimming unsupervised. And although we drill this over and over again, prevention is much better than treatment. So if we can stop children and young people drowning, that is much better for them long term. And it certainly feels over the last year we've seen a massive increase in the number of drowning cases or there's more than being picked up by news outlets. We had an unbelievable summer in terms of temperatures and good weather which essentially drove people to our beaches and our inland waterways such as rivers and reservoirs. And particularly during that hot spell, it felt like every single time I went onto the uh, news website, there was more tragic cases of drowning. And this is an onus in us to be able to prepare our department and ourselves for how we resuscitate these cases. And although these patients, um, these pictures are quite harrowing, they do tell a story of how other young children are drowning as they're being driven away from their home country crossing large volumes of water, either the Mediterranean or the English Channel, often in poor conditions with very little regard for safety. And these children are dying in huge numbers. Drowning, in terms of the simplest definition, is when liquid enters the lungs. And this is usually in the form of water. And the recommendations is now to simplify the terms and adhere to fatal or non-fatal drowning and also recognising that water rescue is a potential, in which case the patient is taken from the water and has no evidence of respiratory or cardiovascular compromise. Unhelpful terms include dry or wet drowning, or delayed onset of respiratory uh, distress, or secondary drowning. And we should try to avoid these at all costs. Now there is a difference between immersion and submersion. 
And submersion is when your head or that whole head is below the water. And immersion is when the head is bobbing up and down above the waterline. And these will have difference in terms of outcome and in terms of the amount of water that can enter the lung. And while there is pathological differences but how, how salt water and fresh water cause damages to the lung and impair respiration and eventually cardiac arrest, these should be managed in the same manner. And it doesn't really matter in how I resuscitate a patient whether they've drowned in salt or fresh water. Your physiological response to water can depend on temperature. And whenever we enter into cold water, we can get this hypothermic or cold shock. When we start to shiver, we may increase our respiratory rates. We may peripherally start to shut down. And this can last for a variety of um, duration of time, depending on how your body has been primed to it. But if we have a submergent injury where our head goes underwater, we have this usually breath-holding reflex where we stop breathing, usually associated with tachycardia but can be associated with bradycardia as well. After a period of time, the high CO2, low oxygen levels will trump this diving reflex, prompting us to inhale. Water enters into the upper airway, we get laryngospasm, which is there to prevent water entering into the lungs. Again, this only lasts a period of time before that spasm release, and we get a massive influx of water into the lungs, which can result in removal of surfactant further respiratory impairment, cardiac arrest, and death. And this period can happen from seconds to minutes and will vary depending on the individuals. So let's bring this back to a clinical point of view about how we're going to prepare. And we've already mentioned the case, but just to go over it again, is a two-year-old male who has found submerged in water, no obvious injuries, has ongoing resuscitation of cardiac arrest, and will be there in 10 minutes. And drowning is one of those cases in which we can have unexpectedly good outcomes despite the history and the presentation that's in front of us. And this was something that I saw on Twitter in the last few months with a pre-hospital crew who were called to a cardiac arrest. And this arrest involved a four-year-old boy who drowned in a pool, and this was witnessed on CTV camera, with a downtime of eight minutes. He then had advanced life support performed for 10 minutes before they got ROSC. And not only did they get a pulse back, but also this patient had an excellent neurological outcome. So hypothermic cardiac arrest can have particularly good outcomes in certain circumstances. And in this case, we had a two-year-old girl who had a submergent time of 66 minutes, which was witnessed, who was profoundly hypothermic with a temperature of 19 degrees and arrival to the emergency department who had two hours of active resuscitation, including the use of ECMO or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, and not only survived, but did so with good neurological outcomes. And this challenges us, and it makes us think of those cases which have hypothermic cardiac arrest, that there can be a good prognosis, despite all the odds that may be stacked against us. Now it's important to share this information with your team. So talk about it before this patient arrives. Is this patient someone that we're going to do prolonged resuscitation based on the information that you have? What equipment do I need in place in order to perform this resuscitation? Do I have the use of cardiac bypass or ECMO on site? And would they use this in a paediatric or young adult? 
get that plan in place. So when the patient arrives, I want A, B, C to happen initially. And then I want you to feed back to me. So everybody's got that shared mental model that they're working towards. And before that patient arrives, try and assign either you or somebody else to get additional information, which will help make decisions about how you're going to resuscitate this patient. So try and gain some additional information to help you run this resuscitation and clarify, first of all, what was the exact mechanism of injury? Is this simply a drowning case or is it also associated with significant trauma? Get some information about the temperature both of the patient in whether this is going to be hypothermic cardiac arrest and of the water may have implications on how long you're going to run the resuscitation. We know those patients who are submerged in truly cold water, so anything below 6 or 10 degrees, can have some neuroprotective effects from this. And this is particularly true for young children or small adults. Whenever the water enters into the lungs, the heart cools, which slows the blood circulation and results in the temperature around the brain decreasing quite quickly. And as mentioned in the initial case, there's been some good survival for prolonged submersion times in hypothermic patients up to 66 minutes. Well, this event has been witnessed and the duration of time in water is incredibly important. And the time was taken for CPR to be informed whether this was initiated by a bystander or we had to wait for the pre-hospital team to arrive. We must recognise the physiology that's associated with hypothermia, which can often have similar presentations to death. So the patient will usually be profoundly cold, they may have very shallow or no respiratory effort, they may have low flow cardiac output as opposed to no flow, and their pupils will often be dilated and fixed in response to hypothermia. So appreciate that, take those variables on board and monitor them as you continue resuscitation. Now who doesn't love a little bit of evidence-based medicine? Now we're very fortunate that there is some amazing articles about drowning, both applicable to paediatrics and to our adult population. And this paper was published in the New England Journal of Medicine over nine years ago, but answers some of the pertinent questions. One of the standout parts of this paper is this flow diagram, which tries to give us a little bit of evidence on prognostication. And this was based on a massive data set of over 41,000 patients in Brazil who were rescued by lifeguards. 6% required some form of medical intervention, with less than 1% requiring CPR. So if your patient was removed from the water and was able to answer, and had a normal respiratory examination, they all survived. If they were able to answer and had some evidence of uh, aspiration of water and a normal blood pressure, 95 plus survival rate, with a hypertensive or shock, survival rate was still somewhere in the 80% range. They were also able to offer answers for those more severely unwell. So those who had an absent pulse, who were submerged for over an hour, and who had obvious signs of death, none of them survived. And again, this has implications for how we may manage our department. If we know the submerging time was two hours, we may decide we'll look at the patient when they arrive and stop. For those who had an absent pulse, who had a submerging time under an hour, had no obvious physical evidence of death, the survival rate was between 7 and 12%. And those with a pulse who weren't able to answer but had a pulse present, their survival rate was between 50 and 70%, depending on some other parameters. 
When we look at some of the paediatric specific data, I think this is an excellent article published in 2012 in the BMJ of a study that was performed in the Netherlands. And this is specifically looking at children, so under the age of 16, who had a core temperature of less than 34 degrees and who had confirmed arrest at arrival of emergency services at scene and at over 30 minutes of active resuscitation. And these are the cases that we often worry about. So what will be the outcome for these cases? Should we stop when they arrive or do we continue indefinitely? And this tries to give us some answers. So they had a total of 160 people who met their inclusion criteria, which is quite impressive, of which 30% were um, discharged from hospital with 10% having good neurological outcome at one year. Of the 160, 104 had ongoing CPR um, on arrival to the A&E department equating to approximately 65% of the population. And there's some excellent figures which offers us analysis of specific variables. So unsurprisingly, the longer duration of CPR, uh, the poorer the outcome. So anyone over 30 minutes of CPR had incredibly poor outcomes in terms of death or long-term neurological outcome. Interesting to know there was no statistical difference when they compared winter where the water was colder and in the Netherlands the water can go between 0 and 8 degrees in the winter uh, compared to other seasons. And there was statistical significance in terms of presenting rhythm. Now for most cardiac arrests that come through if they've got a shockable rhythm the outcomes are better. The opposite seems to be the case for hypothermia. Whenever if you present with bradycardia or asystole there seems to be a slightly preferred outcome as opposed to VF. And often in hypothermic patients, these VF patients have um, shock refractory arrests, and this may prompt you to think of ongoing CPR or the use of extra corporeal life support. They were able to find some really good data on whether basic life support was performed at scene, and if it was delayed for over 10 minutes, the outcomes were incredibly poor. So we need to educate our population that if we remove patients who are in active cardiac arrest from the water, we need to start CPR straight away in order to improve some outcomes. So those other variables associated with poor outcomes, including ongoing life support and arrival to the A&E department, low pH, so anything less than 6.8, or an elevated base excess. In this group of 160 patients, 12 were offered ECMO, none of which survived. On the back of this and other studies, uh, APLS or ALSG is able to offer some advice and prognostication, um, which you can easily access from their website or having a look at this slide. So let's bring it back to the resuscitation room. So we talked about how key preparation is that we all should have the shared mental model and that we're ready for the patient arriving. If they're hypothermic, I might be thinking of prolonged resuscitation, in which case I know I'm going to need lots of people. The data is consistently clear after two minutes of CPR the personnel get fatigued and you need to have enough people to be able to rotate through. If it's an older patient do you have something like an autopulse that you can use um, to ensure good quality CPR is delivered to that patient continuously? Do you have access to cardiac bypass or ECMO and is your centre set up to deliver that for children and young people? Think about how your team is prepared in order to actively rewarm this patient. And a scribe is key. Get times written down so that when you, uh, you know exactly what's happening, uh, who arrives when, and what the next step's going to be. And ELSG or APLS have given us some excellent advice about how we can actively rewarm these patients, both externally by removing wet clothes, drying the patient off, and having the temperature of the room 
uh, to an appropriate level, as well as core rewarming by giving them warm glasses, uh, gases, fluids, and lavage. And care has to be taken about how we rewarm them. We don't want to rewarm them too quickly, as there are some known complications associated with that. If the patient is normothermic, as in over 35 degrees, you follow the normal paediatric advanced life support algorithm. If they're hypothermic, as in less than 35 degrees, there is some variations. And this can often throw people off as it can be difficult to remember. So either simulate this regularly or have access to this information in your resuscitation room in order to cognitively offload those changes to somewhere else. So remember, less than 30 degrees, no drugs, and only three shocks. Between 30 and 35 degrees, you can give drugs but double the spacing, and you can consider doing shocks. So if they've got VF or VT, you can continue to give your shocks as you would normally do so. Above 35 degrees is normal cardiac arrest algorithm. There's been some recent change in guidelines by the Resuscitation Council in the UK about how we undertake resuscitations in advanced paediatric life support settings with some specific criteria or recommendations for those who are in hypothermic cardiac arrest. So one of these is that we consider using delayed or interrupted CPR and the other one is consider sending these patients to centres with extracorporeal life support or ECMO. When I looked at the delayed or intermittent CPR, this was really a new concept for me. And when I tried to find any sources about it, this seems to be the paper that the data was taken from, which is a 2014 paper published in Resuscitation. And the data seems to come from three cases, a 29, a 42 and a 57 year old, were the rescuers weren't able to remove the patient from the environment, such as a mountain or a river, while continuing CPR and decided in that instance, the most important thing was to move the patient and stop CPR. Whenever they were removed to a more suitable environment, active resuscitation continued and all three patients had a good outcome. For me in the emergency department, this probably has little benefit in that I should have the personnel and staff required in order to actively resuscitate this patient and continue CPR. It might mean in certain circumstances that it gets prioritized while I do other things, but my plan would be to continue CPR in my emergency department. But it'll be interesting to see if any other data comes through about this. In terms of extracorporeal membrane oxygenation or, or ECMO, there is some good adult and paediatric data looking at improved survival outcomes. So out of hospital cardiac arrest in the UK, survival figures are about 7% and with some of our Scandinavian cousins, these out of hospital figures are up to about 14%. With the use of ECMO in certain, certain circumstances um, in targeted populations, you're in hospital cardiac arrest. Survival rate can go up to 54% for decannulization and up to 40% discharge, which is incredibly impressive. Survival isn't the only thing that we need to be aware of and good neurological outcome is important and this is a publication in 2019 which answers this question. Again, it's a small population involving paediatric patients with only 61 cases of which 41% survived to 12 months and a third of which had good neurological outcomes. A lot of these cases were post-cardiac or had specific complications so therefore the time in order to get ECMO initiated was short. And my feeling is, is that 
this enhanced survival rate is really and these recommendations is pushing us to develop these services to see if we can get similar results from those who die pre-hospitally or arrest pre-hospitally. So when I'm leading these resuscitations I treat them as a trauma and have my team prepped and set up accordingly. When the patient arrives we confirm that they remain in cardiac arrest and continue CPR. We look and ask if there's any catastrophic hemorrhage. While the patient is being intubated early, we also have a member of the team stabilising the C-spine. Someone assesses breathing, looking for alternative pathologies, particularly noted if there's any accessory noises when the patient is being backed. It's often very difficult to establish access in these patients due to them being shut down and or hyperthermic. So therefore IO access is useful and usually too, one to allow the administration of fluids if required and the other drugs. Think about rewarming that patient and remove any wet clothing and to try and rewarm them externally and also increase their core temperature. While all this is happening, someone may be considering doing a secondary survey looking for other injuries which may help explain why the patient is so unwell or alternative pathologies in line with our 4Hs and 4Ts that we're well versed in. So let's bring this back to this case. So before the patient arrives in the department, you're able to gather a little bit more information. So this was an unwitnessed event, but the parents report the child was missing for approximately 20 minutes before he was found face down in the pond. The bystanders who removed him from the water were unable to provide CPR, despite prompts and advice from their emergency services. CPR was started on arrival of the pre-hospital crew, which was 15 minutes from when he was removed from the water. When he arrived to your A&E department, he had ongoing CPR, which was already 30 minutes duration, and one of your amazing regs managed to get a gas as soon as they arrived, which shows an initial pH of 6.8. So let's talk about our arrest management of this patient. So we followed the trauma algorithm. There was no catastrophic hemorrhage, which we'll be expecting in cases like this. We had the patient intubated by our anaesthetist who was using warm gases and was prepped to do so, so there was no delay. We immobilised the C-spine given that we weren't 100% clear on the mechanism of injury. The patient was ventilated um, and we got IO access. Two, done quickly and we were given warm fluids. Our sugar was normal. Our pupils which were fixed and dilated, which, which you remember may be a consequence of hypothermia and not slow, solely related to an intracranial pathology or poor outcome. And the temperature of the patient was noted to be 32 degrees. We continued active rewarming. And as we continued this process, after two rounds of CPR, we got a pulse back. And in this case, the PICU team arrived and took over care. And the rest of this case will be discussed with my colleague Dr McVeigh. Thank you very much for listening and happy to answer any questions um, at the appropriate break.